How many of you have been in this scenario where you are out in the town at a restaurant and you are sitting close enough to the hostess's stand to overhear a conversation between her and another guest who's going to join for the meal? And the man speaks a little too loudly about how he would like a corner booth, please, where he can see all of the exits and he has to sit with his back to the wall so he can be aware of anything that's going on. Or how many of you have seen videos, clips, social media snippets that have communicated this idea of almost a mythical Jason Bourne level of situational awareness where a person sees something that is otherwise innocuous like a loose string or a mispainted bicycle and all of a sudden they are able to construct a perfect theory of exactly what's going on they can see the ambush around the corner uh, or how many of you have seen the idea or a, a caricature of this hyper awareness being portrayed by a man walking down the street and seeing in the mirror of a bicycle across the street that there's an ambush waiting for him around the corner the point that I'm saying here, and the, the 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 this example that has continuously reemerged in not only gun culture but Americana as a whole, is this myth, this idea, this caricature of a human being who is the hyper aware. Now we have been, uh, now we have been able to experience veterans who have gotten out of the military after the global war on terror for well over twenty years, and we've seen the results of people leaving a wartime environment, and we have talked about it in terms of PTSD or injuries or hyper-alertness, hyper-awareness as symptoms of war, be it war neurosis or shell shock or, again, the most common, PTSD. But there's a problem with how we talk about it, and that is that can be found at multiple layers. On the, on the one layer that's perhaps most institutional is that this idea that is PTSD is described as a moral injury, but oftentimes treated as a physiological one. And if it's going to be called a moral injury, then we recognize it exists within a framework of morality, but the very institutions which are trying with their greatest ability in some sense to deny the moral nature of the moral injury of PTSD are also denying the very framework by which a moral injury can be observed. Now I have written about this and spoken about it before but the idea that I am or not the idea the issue that I am presenting here is that the way that we handle and address subjects like PTSD can be seen and observed to be detrimental not only in our cultural sense, but for the sake of the individual. So if PTSD is described as a moral injury, what is it which is being, more, being injured? What is the moral existence, the thing that is receiving the injury? If you are going to hold on to a worldview that there is no objective morality or that people have no morality themselves to hold on to, that it's purely an attack on their identity, then the, word of the, the use of the word moral is either misplaced or arbitrary. Rather, the moral injury that we see described in scenarios that cause something like PTSD oftentimes come in one of two varieties. 
either the individual who is suffering from the consequences of his actions he feels regret for something that he should have done but he couldn't have done or somebody this is that's the first example and the second example is somebody who in the act of going to war witnesses something so horrible so horrifying that his pre or his preconceived faculties did not have the moral fiber by which to handle it on the one hand you have somebody who experiences or is forced to commit atrocities according to his own description and there thus the moral injury is against his own conscience whereas the other one the person who is exposed to atrocities so great that it is difficult for him to handle is is being rended apart because his naivety towards the world was insufficient in understanding what warfare is like but there's a problem here and there's a problem here in the in in not only its diagnosis but how we culturally handled it in the years following world war ii especially around the blitz a series of studies revealed that the city of London, which received the, a great, a great, a greater amount of the uh, attack, a greater amount of the brunt of the force of the Blitz, maintained a certain level of moral positivity. Is probably not the right word, but they maintained a certain outlook, a certain willingness to continue on, and a certain resilience to receiving shell shock or this sort of moral injury which would later be called ptsd but in that time had it had, was referred to oftentimes as war neurosis where and the people so the people of london specifically despite the fact that they received an overwhelming amount of the brunt of the blitz had a a distinct resilience to war neurosis which would later be described in some senses as ptsd in contrast, surrounding areas, or for example, Bristol, which is another London town, or not London, but another England English town, which received far less, if any, of the firepower that was labeled as the Blitz, had an overwhelmingly frailty, overwhelming frailty, or a susceptibility to this war neurosis. In fact, so what we see here is those who experienced the brunt of war were less likely to show symptoms of the trauma from the war. It wasn't simply that they were hiding it. It's that they did not have the proportionate expected amount of response in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder. But those who did not experience the same level of strain and stress on a physical aspect they they themselves were so much more susceptible to this pre-descripted version of PTSD. And strangely enough, veterans in our contemporary era in the year 2023, or when I was I even saw this quite a bit when I was getting out of the military quite some time ago, is that you saw almost a one-to-one -one ratio. It wasn't universal, but it was so common it felt like it was that the more likely a person was willing to talk about their PTSD publicly in a very, let's just say, self-aggrandizing fashion, the less likely that they experienced any legitimate trauma that was according to what those who were fighting would experience. 
more uh, may, let me let me say that again more likely the closer people were to the battlefield the p- closer people were to going out and fighting on in 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 the global war on terror in iraq and afghanistan the closer people were to pulling triggers and launching rockets the 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 less likely they were to report something like ptsd the further away they were with there being a really fine sweet spot between people who never left the united states and those who were deployed on the front lines so to speak that area is where you find so much more of the prevalence the publicly displayed versions of ptsd you could almost make a bet that the person who went out and whinged loudly for the news or danced like a bear for the public saying or begging his neighbors not to use fireworks on the 4th of July if you looked into his military history you could almost guarantee that you would find no record of trauma or deployment to an area that received indirect fire and i say this with a caveat and a warning caveat that it's not the case that every single person who has exhibited this trait is a one for one equivalency with those who did or did not see war it was just a trend observed a commonality a not so much a normative function but something that we saw time and time again that being the more likely somebody was willing to claim PTSD, the less likely it was that they had a combat position. And now then, then the important question would be, why? Is it that those who went to combat were also more likely to receive the training that built them up to be sturdy in the line or in, in sturdy in fa- sturdy when facing warfare? And that those who, as people casually refer to as pogues or people other than grunts or legs or whatever the derogatory story of the day was, were those people not prepared for war but still then thrust into its environment and expected to thrive otherwise? There is a mixed level of criticism to be placed at people according to their position and their claimed perceived amount of trauma but what is what but what does stand out and what does continue to stand out whether it's coming from the post-war blitz research on london or it is the veterans who returned from the global war on terror or how we see this person this hyper aware man can help us well, how we look at these things helps reveal how we think about the world. And as the warning goes, hyper-aware people are going to get you killed, specifically in an emergency. Now let's go back to high school. I'm homeschooled, so I get, I get to play the fake version of the view from above fallacy. I get to sit over here and say, I wasn't there, but I get to make claims about it. So if you want to come at me for it, I guess now's your chance. But if we look at this idea of bullies, who do bullies pick on? Bullies pick on the kid who squeals the loudest. And this has been, I'm gathering my experience from outside of like a high school environment, more like the big world or frat houses or colleges or my observation of people and how they grew up in their 20s and 30s, both in the military and beyond. But when you look at the way that bullies and the how the, when you look at the way on how bullies select their prey, so to speak, 
they particularly look for something that someone that will display two factors. The first factor is they won't fight back. Of course, a bully doesn't want to pick on a guy who's going to possibly break his jaw or knock out a tooth or whatever. But a bully also doesn't want to pick on somebody that's going to make him, that's going to kind of pang his conscience the wrong way or whatever it is. A bully wants to get something out of it. And so what we see in this pseudoscientific observation is that bullies pick on kids who squeal. So if you're a whiny little shit who doesn't keep it to himself and throw, makes a big display of being picked on all the time, you're incentivizing your own torture. Find a spine and stand up properly, but do so with grace and magnanimity. Magnanimous. Do it magnanimous. Do it magnanimously. Ah, that's such a tough word. Do it with dignity. How about that? So, uh, yeah, so what we, the point that I'm saying with that is that when, in what we have seen is that we've seen that, well, you know, in bullies, bullies pick on kids that squeal and bullies pick on kids that don't fight back. So if you learn how to defend yourself, chances are you're going to see a lot less bullies. We see this happening in culture too. We see this that men who stand up straight, who are somewhat uh, properly alert of their environment, who are making eye contact when necessary and paying attention to their surroundings, they are much less likely to be victims of petty and even serious crimes. But people who keep their heads buried in their phones or people who make themselves into easy targets do exponentially make themselves more likely to be preyed upon. And on top of both of these, however, is another problem. Because most of how gun culture approaches crime in this world, especially that type of being attacked, is we assume the status quo of the low investment bad guy or the low skill bad guy. In other words, we're getting gas, we're minding our own business, and some dude who probably can't read and is carrying a handgun that he probably can't shoot is, is going to go rob a gas station for like cigarettes and like $30. And that is this scenario that's been presented time and time again. And that is the scenario that is perfect for your hyper-aware individual. Because the maximum level of threat that the hyper-aware individual is concerned about is somebody that is going to telegraph their ill intent so broadly that you wouldn't need a billboard to describe it. And the hyper-aware individual is so obsessed, and I will argue, with looking like he's aware or overcompensating for some past moral failure that he is going to portray himself to the world as if he is not only aware, but his virtue is tied to his awareness. If you want to have a fun phrase to throw at your friends, hyper-awareness is the virtue signaling of the tactical bro. I will say that again. Hyper-awareness is the virtue signaling of the tactical bro. It is the attitude that one can throw feathers out like a peacock and make oneself look as if they were hyper-aware while simultaneously and most likely outside of their realm of understanding, making they themselves into the perfect target for the skilled assailant. If you telegraph so boldly your 
version of hyper-awareness, what you're doing to the world is you're telling petty criminals that you're probably too annoying to deal with, which is a good thing, but you're informing serious opponents of all of the avenues of approach that make you available. It's like playing a game of poker. If you keep staring at your hands with that intensity, people might start noticing that you're very confident in that card. I'm not a poker player. Let's find a better metaphor. Uh, let's find a better metaphor. And there's actually there's a couple of them, but one of them that's most entertaining for a little bit of contemporary culture is, uh, let's say you're in the gulag in... And was it Call of Duty Modern Warfare? The uh, new, the war zone. It's their new, it's not even new anymore. And so you're in the gulag. If pe people who play the game know what I'm talking about. And if you are turning your character to stare in the direction that you're about to go, your opponent is likely to know which direction you're going. There's a little bit of like rock, paper, scissors that could go onto it, but we're, this is another example. Uh, perhaps a, a final and more example concern, a way that this is used in some forms of criminal court is if you're sitting there googling this you know you filling up your search history and all of your on all of your devices your unsecured devices um about a person and you're using words like pattern of life and organization and if you're sitting there communicating to the internet using the internet as your tool to try to figure out how to do some nefarious activity it's not going to be very hard for somebody who has access to your search history to figure out what you're doing and who you're targeting so the point in this one is from a not even not only just a defensive standpoint but from a gun culture standpoint is if you're being hyper aware you are telegraphing to serious people how insecure you really are and this hyper awareness that was so prevalent in 2015 has i wouldn't say entirely faded but it's it has produced a certain amount of let's say ironic humor for me. Almost every single person who I've met who displays, overtly displays, puts on a display of their hyper-awareness has turned out to be either a stolen valor character, I'm sorry, a, a, a perpetrator or a, a, a person who has done, who is, who is a, what's, how do you say it? How do you do it? D d somebody who's done a stolen valor? Uh, or somebody who ha is compensating for a lack of achievement during their military career. The veteran who comes home from a hard deploy. I remember hearing this one. That was probably one of the best stories that I've ever heard. Uh, not best stories, but one, one really clean example. And I've got two of them off the top of my head. Is that I remember I was a veteran. I had probably, you know, I had already gotten out of the military. I had worked in private contracting for a while. I'd been around the world quite a bit. Uh, and I, I, I encountered this young guy who just got back from his first deployment. And he was, I think, in the National Guard, but let's not make excuses. He had just come back from his first deployment, and he was, and the first thing that he did is he entered into his, the environment where we were at, and he waxed poetically about how hard his deployment was and how challenging it was, and the temperature was awful, and that it was 180 degrees outside. Which is funny because I think that would, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that would kill you. Uh, if you know, and, and he said, "Is 180 degrees outside in the shade? The desert was so hot." I was like, "No, I don't. I don't think it was 180 degrees on the surface, bud. Um, maybe the pavement, the black pavement, could have reached something like that. But let's not, uh, you know, let's not let hyperbole define our experiences."
And it was just it was funny too. It was, it was funny listening to this guy talk about how crazy his deployment was until he realized that there were people in the crowd who had been deployed to the exact location that he had been deployed to, and they knew before he had even finished his story that everything that he said was bunk. It was all garbage. Another example that I had, another example uh, that I knew is I knew this I, this guy. Um, I didn't. I say I, to say I knew him was kind of a casual way of phrasing it, but he was one of these hyper aware characters. And every time we'd go somewhere, he would make a song and dance, not literally song and dance, but he'd make a display about performing, doing the thing where he was back to the wall and look at all the doors and check everybody out and. You know, and he would, he, and he was very, very, very overt about it. And he wanted to make sure that I knew that he knew what he was doing. And I wanted her, I wanted him, he wanted me to know that I knew that he was watching out. Um, the dude was a Navy guy who never did anything except for sit on a boat. And uh, he, you know, and so like it was, it was kind of like, hmm. Uh, not even not even like a combat MOS type Navy guy. He was uh, he was something else, and it was interesting. And in contrast, and to be very clear about this, every let's 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 just say cool cat that I've known, every SEAL Team Six guy or Delta Force operator or or well experienced contractor or even guys who've been in Ranger Regiment for a while, uh, almost to a T, every single one of them that has made it and made it well and performed well in their environment outside of the simple structure of the military uh, has been somebody who is it's not necessarily chill but he is able to address his the the the, the hardship and the trauma of his experiences and sometimes to a great and emotionally wounding level but he doesn't make a display of it none of them do they don't turn it into some sort of grandiose story about how every day their life is so hard because of something and another like that and that stuck with me to this time the closer i've the, or the closer i've known to people who have seen genuine war the closer they are to being and the, and the more capable individuals they are the less their stories are about their personal trauma the more hyper-aware a person displays himself, the less likely we are inclined to believe that his trauma is legitimate. And this creates a deadly problem because those who work for organizations like the VA are either unwilling or immoral to understand the nuances of how it, what it's like to be a veteran. And so they punish people for not turning everything into a, a display. In fact, in some ways, the way that we treat the moral injury that is PTSD incentivizes individuals to make a display of their current trauma. And that goes back to where we started here, and that is a little bit on how being hyper-aware and making a show of oneself being hyper-aware is going to get you killed particularly and most explicitly when you act in a way and you make a display of being hyper aware and you signal that to the world you're informing legitimate predators whether they are of the criminal sort or of just simply the malicious sort that not only are you fresh prey but you have something to hide rather a sense of stoic stability is the best form of defense against the preying eyes of 
malicious ne'er-do-wells, if you want to use that phrase, uh, but malicious predators. The praying eyes of malicious predators is a little redundant. The person who you're going to deter with a semblance or a display of overt hyper-alertness is the person who's going to most likely be dissuade from pre preying on you by your posture and your stance and the and your simple presence at the table. Situational awareness should be something like this. If you invite people over to dinner, what are you doing while they're at your house? Are you sitting on your phone, paying attention to something else? Do you have your head in the clouds? Are you aloof? Or are you present and engaged with those who are at your dinner table? If you serve a meal and you are not present there at the table at which you sit, that is the breaking of the rule of situational awareness. Now take that same level of observation of the world around you and apply that to anywhere else you go, on the road, in the highway, at the coffee shop, at a restaurant, in your workplace, wherever you are. That's the best way. It's like a medium handshake. You don't want to be so tightly gripped that you make yourself look obvious. And you don't want to be so loose that you're not even paying attention. And because we, I'll, I'll go back to addressing it. The type of predator that you're going to attract if you put on, make a display of your hyper-awareness is the type of predator who's going to be very skilled, willing, and capable to circumnavigate your already telegraphed versions of self-defense. They are going to function in your weakness because you have made it in no way, shape, or form ambiguous to the best way to take advantage of you. And when we talk about the morality, the moral injury of PTSD, we are warned in a moral standpoint not to make a giant display of our injury. It is not that we need to suffer in silence and keep it to ourselves. It's that it's a warning sign against those who are using their perceived injury as a farming mechanism for likes and clicks and support or whatever it is. The, the issue with how our culture and our society approaches PTSD is that we require or we understand that it's a moral injury, but we wish to treat it with either medicine, medication or isolation or stigma. We overdiagnose it Say a person is having a difficult time, whether it's at work or finding a job or stabilizing their existence, and instead of looking at the very realistic issues that might be something like a traumatic brain injury, uh, we diagnose them with PTSD. And then we send them off into the woods with drugs to hope, hope that they uh, you know, figure it out. Or we overdiagnose PTSD by observing and permit, permitting bad behaviors to persist long after their time is due because of some in some perceived moral injury that took place in the past. So, what is the takeaway? What is the big piece here? Association with hyper-alert individuals will get you at least within the realm of being a target. It will make you adjacent. So if you are that person who has been putting on overt displays of being hyper aware, uh, I'll let you know. I see you, man. And you can do better. You can really do better. 
it's not that you just need to chill out. It's you can do better. I know I get it. It's giving you some semblance of a sense of importance, but uh, for your health and for everybody else's, let let your hair down a little bit. Stop stop making it a display of how aware you are of the world. We get it, but the way that you're doing it is counterproductive and putting everybody else in a position where they can't really they don't want to be around it anymore. Second part: if you know people who are hyper aware, watch out. Lots of them are charlatans. Lots of them, many of those people are lying about their background or they are producing some sort of, they're ginning up some sort of uh, um, sense of compassion for their, their experience, but they're not really willing to do the right thing to get out of it. So we're going to talk more about PTSD in the future. But the last thing is, as history has shown, those who are the most willing and capable and prepared for violence are the least likely to be re to traumatized by it when they experience it. And as we are seeing a decentralization of the West and the world in general, and we, as we are seeing the internet open up more opportunities, whether it's through Telegram, where we can live feed, see streams of warfare taking place in both Israel and Gaza, or we can see what's going on in Ukraine hours, if not minutes after it's happened, where we can see people commit suicide with hand grenades, and we can see the trauma that it causes to bodies, I warn you, as we as individuals of this world, if we are going to say that there is no distinction between soldier and citizen, if that we as men are men capable of violence and decide to make ourselves responsible for thus, if we are going to understand these things, then it is imperative that you and I continue to build within ourselves a semblance of understanding of morality so that when we are faced with morally difficult problems on a battlefield or in our own lives that we will not revert to crawl into a hole of perceived self-injury and instead we will carry on and conquer the world that we have in front of us if we are going to withhold our skill, if we are going to hide ourselves from the realities of the world, then we are at least partially responsible when that reality causes trauma on our will, in our psyche, so to speak. One example that I've used to try to describe PTSD is that it is a man who has all of the agency, I'm sorry, has who bears the responsibility for the outcome of a scenario, but does is not permitted the agency to act within it. In other words, you are responsible for what happens, but your hands are tied along the way. The worst thing that we can do is tie our own hands. And one way that people do that more often than anything else is they close their mind off to the intellectual tools necessary to our self-defense and that ground our values. So if you want to join us here on the Redacted Culture Cast, you can either head over to redactedllc.com or you can go to redactedculture.locals.com. Join, uh, hit that subscribe button or whatever the social media is thing today. And you can join the chat where we're starting to implement live communications, live chats, back and forth, Q&A, as well as if you're interested in guns and gear, technology and tactics, that's where you're going to find most of it. Because as far as it comes to YouTube and the podcast, what my contribution here publicly will be philosophy. And this has been the Redacted Culture Cast. If you want to support us or if you just want to share the show, this is your chance to do it. If you want to be part of the development of gun culture that moves away from the intellectualism of the past, then share the show with somebody else. In fact, if you want to make it a meme, share it with that guy you know who's a little too hyper aware. Maybe he'll come around and turn out to be one of your friends. 
maybe he'll get his act together. And if that and if not, well, then at least you know who to avoid. So, without further ado, thank you for listening. Now go forth and conquer.